Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Good to be here in the house of the Lord and to lift up his name and to glorify him. He is worthy. I want to have you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And this morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Actually, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, um, but we'll only get to verse 4 <laughs> because I found that I could not condense this down uh, to one morning, one, one session of, of preaching here. What we're going to notice in this passage is very important in the life of the church. It's very important in the life of those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's extremely important for preachers also to preach the Word. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we will begin to look at the passage. Father, we thank you this morning for your presence in this place. We know that we have hope because of you. We have the words of life because of you. And we give you praise this morning, and we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from thy law, that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to live this gospel out in the world in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Second Timothy, and in this book, uh, Paul is writing uh, his second letter to Timothy from a Roman prison. He is awaiting his certain death, and probably because of him speaking the word boldly, proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming the gospel message. Timothy is his spiritual son, and Timothy's going to need encouragement and strengthening to fulfill his calling faithfully in Paul's absence. And he's going to need this encouragement in the face of opposition of the gospel from outside the church and also of discouragement and discontent inside the church. Paul urges Timothy here to overcome by preaching boldly the gospel in the face of persecution. It's coming, he says. If it hasn't come yet, it will. He encourages Timothy to keep going on in his current struggle and to endure in the struggle to come. And so at this point, I'm thinking, okay, this is kind of a downer. This is saying, when we get into the gospel ministry, when we live the Christian life, it's a struggle. Why does that have to be? I mean, Jesus has saved us. He's given us eternal life. He's given us grace and hope and peace. And he's done all that because life is a struggle. Life is a battle. Life is war. John Piper said, life is war. He said, that's not all that it is, but it is always that. And the same is true of the ministry. It is a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. One of my heroes in the faith said that ministry is much about going from crisis to crisis and ministering in those situations. And so 2 Timothy is a kind of a combat manual for use in spiritual warfare. If you, as you read the letter, you're going to notice that it doesn't uh, easily give itself up to an outline, uh, major divisions in that, because it quickly goes from one exhortation to the next, one word of encouragement to Paul, 
on to the next, or on to Timothy, and on to the next. In the first part of the letter in chapter 1, verses 6 through chapter 2, verse 13, we find encouragements for the minister to endure. And then next, in chapter 2 through this passage today, Paul exhorts Timothy to handle and proclaim God's Word boldly, with care and with accuracy. And he ends the letter with personal requests. He passes on some important information and he sends final greeting. And then he ends with a closing prayer and a blessing. Now that is admittedly a very brief overview of this book. So let's look more closely at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Beginning at verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth. Can I get bottle of water. <laughs> Thanks. They will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you will be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am ready being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid out for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, excuse me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's final words of encouragement to Timothy is a classic summary of the work of God's servant to proclaim the gospel in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Not just for pastors, just not, not just for teachers, but it's for all Christians. Last time we looked in this book, uh, Matt had preached on 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and the last verses there. And there Paul's counsel to Timothy was to abide in the Bible's teaching. But now in chapter 4, he charges Timothy to preach it. He must preach it while people are still listening because they won't always. And so this passage is used in ordinations and in installation services of young pastors and teachers and proclaimers of the gospel, but it is for every one of us who have come to know Christ. So let's look first of all in verse 1. Ooh, we're going to have an electric event here. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things that happens when you're nervous, or when I'm nervous, is my mouth gets very dry, and then my nose begins to run. So when that happens, please look away, okay? It's all right. The foundation of the charge is these very words in verse 1, I solemnly charge you. It can be translated, I solemnly order you to do this, Timothy, preach the word. And he does so, he says, in the presence of God. And so he's reminding Timothy 
his spiritual heir, that his ministry is carried out before the face of God. And that is true of us as well. Whether we realize it or not, whether we think about it or not, God is the one with whom we have to do, and he's watching. He's with us in the midst of it. And what we do needs to count for him. It needs to come from the depth of our being. It needs to be sincere and true. And so that's what Paul is telling Timothy here. In him we live and move and have our being, and we will answer for the ministry that he's given to us. We're going to answer for our lives and how we've lived them. Everything we do and who we are deep down are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Paul ushers Timothy into the majestic presence of God the Father and also of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So the one who sees everything has a son who is going to judge everything. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to judge those who are alive at the time of his return, and he's going to judge those who are dead, who will be resurrected to a personal meeting with him, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 18. Not only is he watching, and not only is Christ there as our judge, he is coming back, this scripture says, and many other places in the New Testament. And so Paul strengthens his charge to Timothy by reminding him that Jesus the judge is coming back and that he will establish his kingdom. Look at this term, this term appearing in in the Greek. It's epiphania, I think is how you pronounce it. I'm not sure. But it's used in chapter 1, verse 10 to refer to Jesus' birth. And in First uh, Timothy six fourteen, and in Titus two thirteen, and here it describes Christ's second coming. Remember that the kingdom of Christ is already here, as Colossians one thirteen states: Christ delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. But the emphasis of Jesus as judge here indicates that His kingdom is also yet to come. And so Timothy and all of us are going to give an account. Paul fortifies this solemn order, this solemn charge to Timothy and to us with the glory of the coming king. Barclay says this about it. That's William, not Charles. Um, is a great, he's a guy that does great word studies and he does biblical history. And he's good to read in that way, but you have to be careful of some of his theology. But he says this about this word appearing, epiphania. He says that it was specially used in connection with the Roman emperors, that when they would ascend to the throne, that was their appearing, that was their epiphania. That is Paul's idea here. That's his thought behind using this word. Because when the emperor would visit anywhere in the empire in Timothy's time, that place was swept and clean and everything was made to look just so, so that it would be fit for the emperor's appearing. And as I studied that this week, I became convicted that very often, in fact, daily, my, my work does not fulfill this. It's not ready for Jesus appearing. 
I'm not as sincere as I need to be. I'm not as surrendered as I need to be. And maybe you're here and you're that way this morning. There's good news. Jesus forgives. Jesus restores. Jesus sets our feet on the solid rock. So Paul says to Timothy and to us, you know what happens when a town is expecting the epiphania of the emperor, the appearing of the emperor? Well, one greater than the emperor is coming. So do your work in such a way that all things will be ready when he appears. I really apologize for this. (laughs) Okay, now can somebody take the water from me? There's going to be... There's going to be an electric fire. There's going to be an explosion soon. So when we come to that place in our walk, in our ministry, where we realize that it's not ready for Christ's appearing, where it is not all that it needs to be, we can come to Him and say, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, And he hears, and he answers, and he blesses, and he gives us grace and endurance in the midst of the trial or the struggle. Next of all, Paul says, preach the word. This command is the basis for all of the others. There are five commands here in one verse, five imperatives of command, and they're rapid fire. One scholar said that they have crisp forcefulness of a military order and that they are given with machine gun-like precision. And that is a fact. Because Paul's not beating around the bush. This is his last message to Timothy. He's saying, here is what is important. I believe it has this military feel because we are in that warfare that we talked about earlier. Christian ministry is warfare. And so what do we do in the face of it? Paul says, preach. Caruso. Caruxon. To preach. To proclaim before the public to herald, to make known officially and publicly a matter of great importance. Heralding or preaching, then, is the divinely authorized proclamation of the message of God to men. It is the exercise of ambassadorship. And as you know, Paul prayed for uh, boldness, to proclaim boldly the gospel in the situation that he found himself in. He says, I am an ambassador of change in Ephesians chapter 6. So this, there are examples of this preaching in the Scripture all throughout in the Old Testament and the New. Noah was such a preacher. He was such a herald. He said, God will destroy the world, and so turn away from your sins. That was his message. Jonah had a one-sentence message that said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another preacher was the Gerasene demoniac. God has done great things for me, he said, after God had driven those evil spirits out of him and had restored him to his right mind. The Apostle Paul, Philip the Evangelist, Peter, the twelve disciples, Jesus, they all were these preachers of the gospel, these ones who herald his word. The word here, we're to preach the word. We're to preach the gospel. True Christian preaching is biblical preaching and nothing else. The charge to preach the word follows right after 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for rebuke, for correction, and so on. And so this command to preach the Word is closely connected to the fact that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is the gospel. It is the true message of redemption, redemption in Jesus Christ. It begins in Genesis, and it goes all the way through to the end of Revelation. That is all the Word of God. That is all the gospel. Um, I didn't know whether to include this or not, but I, my new uh, novelty thing in my life is YouTube. I think it is a tremendous tool. It's also, uh, it's also dangerous in many ways. But I got onto YouTube, and, um, and I typed in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, and I, there were all kinds of messages on this, or just someone reading the passage. Um, and some of the preachers I recognized and knew that, that that would be a good message to listen to, to get some ideas for, for the sermon. But then I ran across one where there was a, a lady preacher and it had this text under there. It said 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 7. And the title of her sermon was Life Lessons from Baseball. You're supposed to kind of giggle, but it is, it is sad. How sad is that? We have the Word of God and instead we're going to replace it with everything I learned in life is due to baseball. David Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the work of preaching is the highest and the greatest and the most glorious calling to which anyone can ever be called. And he also said that preaching is the most urgent need in the church today. And as such, true preaching is the greatest need of the world also. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. It is not a social organization or institution it's not a political group, it's not a cultural society, but it is the pillar and ground of the truth, and as such, we must preach the Word. And it is true that I'm nervous today. It is true that my mouth's dry, and soon my nose will be running, and I can't wait to run home. <laughs> and I've felt the butterflies all week long. But it's not only because I don't preach much anymore, it's because the weightiness and the urgency of the message, of the task that preachers do, because of this weightiness, we don't feel worthy to preach the Word. It's why we feel inadequate and hesitant. It's because we realize of the great importance preaching is, so much so that we shrink from it, we hesitate we come in fear and in trembling, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, I come to you, or I was among you in fear and trembling, not because he was a shy or retiring type. It was because he recognized the urgency and the power of the message, and he didn't want to mess it up. The next four commands tell us how to preach. He says in the second part of verse 2, be ready, be prepared in season and out of season. That word literally is to stand beside. It was used of a military guard always at his post and ready for duty. When people are listening and when they're not listening, 
we are to preach the gospel. We are to be prepared when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. As Christians, we are always to be on call, ready to take advantage of every opportunity for service that the Lord places in our path. And the season for proclaiming the gospel is this season. It's now. And it'll be in the days ahead if the Lord tarries. It is always time to preach the gospel. Now is the time. We don't know how many days we have left. We don't know how many days the person to which we're ministering has left. And so it is good to be in season, ready in season and out. Not only are we to be ready all the time, but when we do give the gospel, we are to reprove folks. We're to correct error by the use of reasoned argument found in the Scripture. We are to rebuke. We are to give sharp reprimand against sin that the Bible points out. And then we are to exhort. We're to encourage in the midst of that. We've, we've already reproved. We've already rebuked. And so now we have to give hope to those who have reproved and rebuked that we've re- done that too, giving them tender encouragement with great patience and instruction. So there's, there's those two things together, the positive and the negative. The negative being we've reproved them, we've rebuked them, and now we will give them encouragement and we will be patient with them and we will give them instruction from God's Word. And Paul says this also because he is a pastor too and he recognizes that Timothy is going to encounter folks in church that aren't always agreeable to the message. He says, while preaching the word at any and all times with reproof, rebuke, and exhortation, you will want to pull your hair out at times. Sometimes you're going to want to quit. You're going to want to walk away. But he says, do it anyway. In order for the reproof and the rebuke to do its work, we must accompany that message with sound, reasonable teaching. Because to rebuke without instruction is to ignore the root cause of the error. To reprove and rebuke and encourage is is to preach the Word. Notice that that is the exact thing, same thing that Scripture accomplishes over in chapter 3, verse 16. It's the same thing as what we're supposed to preach. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. So we confront the sin with the Word of God, but then we encourage. We encourage repentant sinners to surrender to God in order to live righteously and do it with great patience and instruction. Tell them that change can happen because Christ died for the ungodly and because the Spirit enables us to do so. And so now let's look at the reason for the charge. And the reason is found in verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. The time is going to come. In Timothy's day, it was very easy to find teachers who would tickle the itching ears. In fact, they were called sophists. 
and they would advertise in the, the town square. They went from city to city offering to teach anything for pay. Not that they knew anything about the subject. They were just going to write about it and charge a, a, a small fee for people to come and listen so that they could make a living. They promised to teach everything you ever wanted to know about whatever it was. A subject for a low price. But they taught in error. And they were false teachers. In verses 3 and 4, Paul gives Timothy insight into his future ministry. He says, there is going to come a time, even in the church, where, where men will have an appetite for anything but the Word of God, for false teaching, rather than for the rock-solid Word of God. He says, first, that they will put, not put up with sound doctrine. He says, second, that they will amass teachers who would tell them what they wanted to hear. And he says, thirdly, that they would do this because they wanted only to satisfy their itching ears. They want to be entertained as consumers of God talk rather than to be rebuked and corrected and exhorted by the Word of God, which is our deepest need. Whatever it is that we think that we need, what really is needed is to hear the inspired Word. We need to feast upon the bread of life. We need the gospel. We need it every day. We need it all the time because we're in warfare. Verse 4 says that they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul gives in verse 4 two results of straying from the word. First of all, they would turn away from the truth of the gospel. Then they would turn aside to myths. That's religious error. And this word, turn aside, literally is a, it's used as a strong word. It's a medical term to describe uh, dislocating a joint, wrenching it out of socket. So it's a violent turning away from God. It reminds me of when the, the hearers of Stephen plugged up their ears and charged him and killed him. Paul tells Timothy and us that the day is coming when people... Even people in church will willfully turn away the Scripture, turn away from the Scripture, and as a result, we will become uh, the victims of their own deception. And that's happened in the history of the church. That's happening today. Evangelicalism has lost its tolerance for confrontive preaching. This is a quote from John MacArthur. Now the church is flirting with serious doctrinal error. Christians madly pursue extra-biblical revelation in the form of prophecies and dreams. Preachers deny or ignore the reality of hell. The modern gospel promises heaven apart from holiness. This is evidence of doctrinal compromise. We've been there for a long time. It's been happening for thousands of years. It started in Paul's day and Timothy's day. In John 6, Jesus had preached a very hard message to the crowds, and as a result, the Scripture says that many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. And Jesus turned to His disciples and asked, You don't want to go away also, do you? And Peter said, speaking for all of those disciples, He said, Lord, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are they going to go? 
Where are they going to hear the word except from us? Except from those who have been born again. If you've been born again today, preach the word. In season and out of season. Preach it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to come and gather around your word and learn of you. Father, I pray that you would help me to take more seriously these commands. To place myself under the authority of your word all the time. Father, I pray for this congregation, these folks that are here today. Father, would you communicate these truths to them by your Spirit? Father, would you let us know that, that you're in charge, that your word is true, does not return into you void, and that we have the opportunity to share it? to live it, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Father, we thank you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.